as a summary of the gospel. When they were being baptized, Christians would recite it as a means of, of showing that they truly understand the gospel. Now, I know that some of the words are a little strange for us, like the word Catholic. Um, it's not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. The word Catholic simply means universal, referring to the global body of the church. It refers to the fact that as believers, there is one body in Christ. When it says descended into hell, not the lake of fire, that word is actually the word for Hades, which we read in the New Testament, or Sheol, which we read in the Old Testament, which is not the lake of fire. It's more referring to the fact that Christ has died, paid the penalty for our sins, and that now, because uh, we believe in Him, we are with Him everlasting. And so we'll, we'll unpack that more, but I know there's some questions kind of, all right, we're saying we believe this, but what do some of these words mean? So just remember, some words change over time. Some people have actually taken the word hell and substituted that for the word Hades. Uh, that's actually not a, a bad idea. We're, we may or may not do that. But I wanted to, to throw that out there as we begin this morning just to bring a little bit of clarity. Uh, but we're making our way th through... The kids are still here. That's what you're saying. Ben keeps pointing at this door over here, and I'm like, there's nothing there. That's the problem. The kids aren't there. If you're in junior church, we want you to go ahead and line right up. It was like bonus teaching time for them. Hi, Noah. I forget things sometimes. It's a lot of kids. It's like half the congregation right now just left. <laughs> Aren't you glad we're up here? <laughs> like, uh, that's amazing. God's grace there. Uh, and we have great children's workers, just so you know. I mean, man, they love these kids. They do. Okay, so we'll now restart, kind of like like, just like we planned. Uh, we're in the Apostles' Creed. We're making our way through. And uh, we're unpacking it just kind of phrase by phrase. We started with what it, what it means to I believe. So what does it mean that we believe in God? Then we said, what does it mean we, that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And today, now we're looking at the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And what we're going to see is that the Christian faith is all about Jesus. You've probably heard the phrase Christ-centered before. It's, it's one that we use quite often. You'll see that in Christian books. Uh, it's not just a cute Christian-y word, though. Uh, the gospel hinges on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one whom we believe in, and it is He who we proclaim. Uh, this is what the early church did. When we go through the book of Acts, the beginning of Acts and the end of Acts is all about these, these speeches about the gospel and how it centers on Christ. The beginning of Acts in chapters 2, 3, and 4, you have Peter standing proclaiming Christ. At the end of Acts, you have Paul standing before governors and officials proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
In Acts chapter 4, this is what Peter says. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel but that, but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the testimony that we read over and over and over in the book of Acts as the gospel is going forth. And so why is Jesus so important? Why is our faith Christ-centered? Why have Christians since the first century risked their lives to proclaim Jesus to other people? In fact, that's what Ben and I, um, we're going to go to India, primarily where we're going to be encouraging pastors and those who are going to unreached people groups and often hostile unreached people groups who are constantly sharing the gospel. So, So why are these people doing this? That's what we're going to read today as we're coming to Hebrews. Why is it that everything hinges on Jesus. And so with that, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And, and so I, what I want to do is invite you to stand at the reading of God's Word. We stand uh, because God's Word comes with His full authority. It comes with His inspiration. It comes for the purpose of building up, for correcting, for teaching. It is, the sufficiency, uh, it is sufficient for all that God does in us. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 in Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now, and we come to you in the name of Jesus, because it is in Jesus whom we are saved. It is in Jesus that we have faith. It is your Son who has died who has risen from the dead, that we could be forgiven from our sins. All the promises that you have for us come true to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the radiance of your glory, the exact imprint of your nature. Lord, I pray that as we we look at your word today, and as we look and behold your son, Jesus, that we would behold you. God, help us to see the truth of your word, the goodness of your word the sufficiency of your word and how your word makes our hearts and our souls well. May we rejoice today because of your son Jesus and what you have done through him for us. In your name, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, What we're going to do is just kind of make our way through this passage, talk about it, and show how it reveals to us Jesus Christ. 
uh, we begin with just noticing that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. The first thing we need to see is that Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. If you look at verse 3, we see that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. So what that means is that when we see Jesus, we see the very glory of God. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus is the same as the Father. An early heresy of, uh, of God in the early church was, was something called modalism. Modalism is the idea that, uh, that God reveals himself at different times um, as the Father, as the Son, and as the Spirit. So it doesn't believe in a triune God. Um, a helpful way to remember this, and you're going to love this, because it's, it's right up there in the Marvel Universe. Um, Ant-Man, I forget Ant-Man's real name, uh, but he can either be tiny, he can either be normal size, or he can be giant. But it's all one person, he just simply changes modes. That's what the early church often thought of as God. Well, sometimes he's Jesus, sometimes he's the Father, and sometimes he's the Spirit, but never is he one at all times. So that's modalism, he changes modes. But what we have here is what the Bible says. Notice in verse 3, we're told that Jesus will sit down at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus is a distinct person from the Father. So clearly, Jesus and the Father are not the same persons. In fact, when we look at the baptism of Jesus, we see Jesus in the water. We see a dove descending, and we're told that the dove represents the Spirit who will come and land on the shoulder of Jesus. And then we have the voice of the Father from heaven. So we have the Father, the Son, the Spirit descending, three distinct persons, one God. And one day we'll have kind of a, a series on Trinity, and we'll walk our way through that, but not today. Uh, but what we see is that there is one God, Father, Son, Spirit. And because Jesus is the very glory of God, we know that he is not less than God. He is not the first created being. He is not something in between God and man, as if he's just the first created being, less than God, better than man. But what we see in God's word is that, is that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Now it's important to understand that because if we don't realize Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, when we start making our way through the Gospels, it doesn't quite make sense who this Jesus is. So let me just go through some verses. They're on the, they're on the screen and they're in your bulletin. But first in John chapter 5.18, Jesus' teaching reveals himself to be equal with the Father. This is what he says. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with, the, with God. So those who heard Jesus, those who listened to him, clearly understood. Jesus is not saying he's God's right-hand man. Jesus isn't saying that he just helps God. They fully understood. Jesus is saying he is equal with God the father in john chapter 8 verse 54 we see the father glorifies the son jesus answered if i glorify myself my glory is nothing it is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our god 
Now, for God to be God, it means that he finds uh, that his primary purpose in all things is his glory. God doesn't glory in anything other than himself. So if God glorifies his son, then his son must be equal with him as the father. In John chapter 5, verse 24, we see that just as God is worshipped, so Jesus receives worship. We see uh, John 5, 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says, you worship God, you must worship me. There's no distinction here. Now, notice when we're in Revelation, when we were preaching through there, an angel would show up, and, and what did John do? John would fall down before the angel. The angel said, what are you doing? You don't fall behind, before me. I'm not God. But here Jesus comes and he says, as you worship God, as you honor him, so you honor me. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, we see that Jesus has, all, has perfect knowledge of God. He says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So the Son and the Father have this perfect relationship with one another. In Mark chapter 2, 5, this one's not up here, but Jesus shows that he, like the Father, forgives sins. If you remember the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, Jesus comes before him and says, your sins are forgiven, which everyone is going, whoa, who's this guy? Only God can forgive sins, and Jesus is like, exactly. Only God can forgive sins. And then he says, just so you know that I can forgive sins, I will now ask him, or I will now command him to stand up and he will no longer be lame, which he does, which thus proves he is God and he has forgiven his sins. One more, I think it's one more. John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said that by believing in him, you have eternal life. Now notice, he doesn't say believing in someone else. He says believing in him. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So when we're going through the Gospels, if we don't understand Jesus co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, we're going, who is this Jesus? Like, He's not making Himself to be subordinate. He's showing and revealing Himself. He is the very radiance of God. In fact, in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we see that Jesus has always been with the Father. We read in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. So clearly Jesus is saying, I have always existed, I am eternal, I am infinite, I have always existed with the Father. All throughout Scripture, we have Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God who is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. So that, that means is how we think about Jesus is also how we think about God. To deny Jesus is to deny God. One cannot reject Jesus and still believe in God. So getting Jesus right is of paramount importance, which was why every single sermon we have is about Christ. And this is why it is so necessary that when we come to our Bibles, we understand how to read them rightly. We must read the Bibles because they reveal to us Christ. When we read Jesus raising the dead, healing the sick, 
touching the lepers, giving the blind sight, making the lame walk, what are we seeing? We're seeing the compassion, the grace, the mercy, and the kindness of our God. When we see Jesus stand on the boat in the Sea of Galilee and say, peace, be still, and instantly the waves in the sea all die down, what we're seeing is the power and the sovereignty and the authority of our God who rules over all circumstances. It's when we come to the Bible, when we're looking at Jesus, we're understanding all that God is for, all that God is, and what he does for us. J.I. Packer said this, Jesus was not just a God-inspired good man, nor was he a super angel, first and finest of all creatures, called God, by courtesy because he is far above all men. Jesus was and remains God's only son as truly and fully God as his father is. This is how the Bible speaks of Jesus. And so when we're reading the Bible, it's important for us to understand how does this show us who Christ is? Because not only is Jesus the final, not only is he the full revelation of God, he's also the final revelation of God. Notice in Hebrews 1, it says that in the past, God spoke through prophets. But now in the last days, he speaks through his son, Jesus. So Jesus comes in the line of prophets, but not like all the other prophets. He's the one all the other prophets look forward to. See, Jesus is the destination. He's the one. All the prophets, even when we go back into Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when Adam and Eve, they have sinned, God comes, and they're talking in the garden, and he says one day he will send the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first glimpse of the gospel we have, first glimpse of the gospel that we have in the Bible. And, and from right there, it's pointing towards the need of one day Jesus will come. And this is how Jesus talked. When Jesus was on earth, he said in Luke chapter 24, 26 and 27, he said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He showed all the Old Testament points towards me. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says that not only is he greater than Abraham, but that Abraham looked forward to the day of Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus makes it clear that all Scripture points to him. This is what it says. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But notice what Jesus says. It is they that bear witness about me. So the Pharisees, they study the Old Testament going, we know there's eternal life in here. But they don't want to believe it goes to Jesus. And so Jesus says, this is why you don't understand anything. Because the eternal life it speaks of is me. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. Jesus is the destination. All the prophets are pointing to him. He's the one whom all scripture is about. So when we come to the Bible... We're not reading 66 different stories, although it feels like that at times, right? It does. And parents, <clears throat> when you're raising your ch children and shepherding them, that's a big one. You've got to overcome that in the beginning. This is one story from Genesis to Revelation about how God creates a people who are separated because of sin and how he will redeem them and how he will save them and bring them into a relationship with him that we would spend eternity 
with him forever. And how does that take place? Jesus comes. So everything in the Bible is about how God creates a people for himself. The means, the method, all of it is Jesus Christ coming. Everything hinges on Jesus in the Bible. So when you're reading, one of the things you're, you need to ask, when you're, when you're in the New Testament, it's fairly easy. How does this reveal Jesus? How does this point to my need for Jesus? In the Old Testament, sometimes it feels tricky because we haven't always trained ourselves to do that. But when we're looking in the Old Testament, we can say questions like, how does this text show the character of the Father? It's always a good question. How does this text show my need for Jesus to come? Which is really helpful when you're going through the kings and the judges. Because in the kings and the judges, what do you have? You have men who are to represent God, who are continually sinful and continually fail in doing what God calls them, calls them to do. And so what do we need? We need the perfect judge. We need the perfect king to come. We need the perfect prophet. We need the perfect priest. We need the perfect sacrifice. All of these things in the Old Testament are showing we need one who is greater. So sometimes we can ask that question, how does this text show my need for Jesus? which is really helpful when you read a text like in Ecclesiastes, and it says, remember and remember. And what we realize is, wow, Ecclesiastes is telling us we need to remember a lot of things. Proverbs tells us we need to remember a lot of things. It must mean that we are forgetful people that sin wants to push us away from God. So what do we need? We need someone who comes and gives us a new heart, a new mind, so that we would continually pursue God and live the way he has called us to. So we see that Jesus is the full revelation of God. He's the final revelation of God. We also see that he is the long-awaited and greatly anticipated Messiah. In the creed, we, were, we read the word Christ. Jesus Christ. And many of you may know this, but many of you may not know this. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Magdalene's not the last name of Mary. Magdalene is, is, is where they were from. So Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It is the Greek word for anointed. It's the same as the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed. And just so you know, parents, when you're walking your kids through this, they have no clue any of that. They need to be taught these things. They need to understand Jesus Christ not a full name, it's a name and a title. And to understand why Jesus has this title, Messiah, this title, Christ, this anointed title, we must go back to the story of David. David wants to build God a house, a temple. David is a great king who pursues God, who desires to please God. But God says, no. David, you're not to be the one who's going to build me a house. In fact, God then turns to David and said, in fact, I'm going to make you a house and that he will appoint a place for Israel and his people would be safe from all enemies. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, this is what God says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So who is the offspring that will come from David? 
who is the king that will build God a house? Who is the king who will reign forever and ever for all of God's people? Who is the king who is going to give God's people rest from all of the enemies? Who is the anointed figure that's being mentioned here? This is where we give that that Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, right? Like in Sunday school, that works most of the time. It works most of the time. Are you guys cold? Okay, I actually feel the coolness up here, and I never feel it, so I just want to make sure everyone's, I'm getting enough heads. Someone want to adjust it and just, I'm getting like a yes and no's, but just adjust it. See, one degree difference, watch, if he turns it to 68, it'll be perfect in here. 67 makes it cold, 69 will make it hot. And if it doesn't, then just blame Chris. <laughs> um, Jesus is this anointed figure. And I mean, think about it. When the angel comes in the New Testament to Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, this is who he says, this is going to be your son. This is what he says, Luke chapter 1, 32. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. What does that sound like? Does that not sound like the, the prophecy that God gave David about a son that will come from him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? This is the anointed one. This is the one whom all of Scripture has been looking forward to. He has come to set his people free. He has come to reign forever. The problem was, is everyone thought that Rome was their biggest problem. Israel had wrong expectations. This is why often people don't believe in Jesus today. They were focused more on the externals rather than the internals. They expected Jesus to be like a mighty general who would ride on a, a mighty war horse, come in, overthrow Rome, raise Israel up to be the powerhouse it was when David was king, conquering all the other enemies around them. But Jesus came to defeat a far greater enemy than just Rome. Jesus came to establish a kingdom, the kingdom of God, that would one day fill the entire earth. And in order to do that, he had to overcome the ruler of this world, which we read repeatedly throughout Scripture, is Satan. And we see that he accomplishes this mission, for he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, meaning his throne is above every other throne. And that's repeatedly how the New Testament talks about Jesus. As the risen Lord and Savior, uh, Paul will say this in Ephesians 1, that he has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's saying Jesus rules over everyone, over everything, not only today, but forever. Jesus is the Son of God, the Anointed One, who has established God's kingdom, and He now reigns on high in heaven. But how? How does He do this? Notice the words in verse 3. After making purification for sins. Now that's just simply a very brief way to refer to the entire gospel. Purification for sins... 
um, is, is something we see all through the book of Hebrews, especially chapters 9 and 10. It will focus on how Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The sacrificial system was the way in which those who believed in God in the Old Testament would atone for their sins. Because our biggest problem is not Rome, it's not Democrats or Republicans or ISIS or North Korea or anything else. Our biggest problem is that we are sinful and thus we're under God's wrath. And the Old Testament sacrificial, sacrificial system was a shadow of what Jesus would do. After all, goats and lambs are not a proper sacrifice for you and me. But what they were is that they were a, a shadow pointing towards a greater sacrifice that would need to be made. And the priests who offered them were a shadow pointing forward to a greater priest who would one day offer a greater sacrifice. And what we're told in, the old, in Hebrews is that Christ comes as the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice so that he would lay himself down on the cross as a sacrifice so that he would suffer the wrath of God instead of you and me. You see, Jesus is the atonement for our sins. He's the full and final revelation of God. He's the long-awaited and greatly anticipated Messiah, and he is the atonement for our sins. He comes so that he would offer his life as a ransom for you and me. He came to stand in our place. In order to do that, he had to come as God so that he could absorb God's infinite wrath. Which have you ever wondered, why is hell eternal? Because our offense against the infinite God is only worthy of an infinite consequence. So to offend the infinite God is to receive His infinite wrath, which is why hell is never-ending. So no one can just come and stand in the place of another person. We needed one who could absorb the fullness of God's wrath, which you and I cannot do. So we need Jesus to be God, but in order for Him to stand in our place, He must be man, because just as in the Old Testament, lambs and goats were not a worthy substitute for humanity. We need man to be in the place of man, which is why Jesus comes as the God-man. And it's for this reason He goes to the cross. He pays the penalty for our sins. He absorbs the infinite wrath of God that we deserve so that we, by faith, can receive His righteousness. And when we believe in Jesus, we're made pure by His grace. We're made holy. And we can now experience His blessings. This is why Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 will say, Our citizenship is now in heaven. And this is not just a work that He did for a small group of people in America or in the Middle East. But in, as we read in Revelation 7.14, we read that, or in Revelation 7, that there will one day be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And they'll be gathered around the throne. And we're told why they'll be there. They're told that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way that we stand before Jesus one day. The only way we enter into the kingdom of God. The only way we experience God's blessings is through Jesus Christ, which is why we say there's nothing more important than Jesus. Working hard, making money, 
planning family vacations, figuring out retirement, deciding whether to go Apple or Android, big question, Ford or Chevy, all are good to wrestle with, right? I mean, those are questions that we wrestle with on a daily basis, but what sin will do is it'll make those things of paramount importance so that our whole entire lives become, well, what about family vacations? What about retirement? I must secure this, when in reality, the most important thing that we should be worried about is have we trusted in Jesus? Because none of those things matter. One of the things that we see throughout Scripture and what James does in the book of James, he says that our life is like a mist. One of the commentators, when I was reading a commentary on James, he said, if James could title your life, it would be mist. And he goes, isn't that just sad and disturbing? Like, think about it. Like, we want to we have this great title above our life. We want to say how much we've accomplished and all the things that we've done. And James is saying, you're here today, you're gone tomorrow. And what we looked at last week in Isaiah 40, when God blows on us, we simply blow away like, like the stubble, like dust in the air. And it's not to say that we're insignificant. It's not to say that God doesn't love us, but it's to show how finite we truly are. And the things that we make important are often not very important, which is why suffering, God will use that as like a doctor does as a tool for surgery. He uses that to expose things within our heart so that we would see what matters most in this world. That's why suffering is often just a grace of God in our life. We don't like it. We don't see it as grace often when it comes, but he uses it as a means to grow us in our faith. <clears throat> one thing is certain. We will all die one day. We will all stand before God. And on that day, neither clothes, neither houses, paint colors, Fortnite, though that's pretty important, electronics, none of those will have any lasting significance. The only thing will matter is if we've believed in Christ and have we been made pure and holy by God's grace in Jesus that's what matters and that's why we come each and every week and we talk about Jesus that's why we're, we're talking about this creed and how if you notice in the creed the longest section on the creed is all about Jesus why? Because Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know the Father. Albert Moeller said, One day, on the day of judgment, we will be defined by our Christology. Meaning, what we truly think of Jesus. That's, that's one we must realize. Jesus is the one we must believe in and submit to. It's our last point. Just Jesus is the one we must believe in and submit to. Now, why do I say believe in, not believe about? Are we just quarreling over words? Is this just mere semantics? Believe in, believe about, is it the same? That's something to think about. And it's something for you to wrestle. Do I believe about Jesus or do I know Jesus? Do I believe in Jesus? Matthew 7, 21 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, now what, what's scary and there's a danger, and we do this because of sin. We can read right over that passage and go right to the next section and the next chapter and not even think about that. But I'm pretty sure that text is there, so we would pause, and we would say, do I say, Lord, Lord, because I believe in Jesus or because I believe about Jesus? When I call Jesus Lord, what does that mean? Is he truly my king and my savior, the one who has died and paid for my sins? Or is he the one that I know did those things and that's really great? If this passage teaches us anything, it says you can know a lot of things about Jesus. But if you don't believe in Jesus, your knowledge is worthless. I think sometimes believing, we get it confused Believing in Jesus is not like carrying a backpack, and I've been thinking about this because tomorrow I'm getting ready to go to India where I will carry a backpack. And uh, in fact, this is great. We're going to go for two weeks. Rose, you'd love this. You know how we went to Lebanon and we had like luggage? So, uh, so we're told to carry, um, carry a backpack, you know, with our Bible or something in it, and in one of those small roller suitcases with like two pairs of pants, three shirts, and that's all we need. For 14 days, 16 days to so see. It'll be kind of fun. So, but we're going to carry your backpack. And I, I will keep this backpack with me like wherever I go. It'll have, you know, a first aid kit in it, have Bible in it, uh, basic things that we need. Uh, so I'll keep it with me. But India is incredibly hot. I will look greatly forward to taking off this backpack repeatedly at times to air out, you know, the back as you're sitting there and just sweating. So I'll do that because... It's hard and it's hot to carry the backpack. And in order to be more comfortable, I will take it off. And, and what if a lot of people think of our faith and belief that way? It's that backpack that we carry, and it's great. We keep it with us all the time, but sometimes it's hot. Sometimes it's hard, so we just kind of set it down. I'm not going far from it, but it's, it's just over there. It's not really a part of me. It's something I carry, but when it gets too much, I set it down for a little while because it's convenient. And then when I need to, I'll pick it back up again and I'll carry it to the next destination and then I'll set it down for a while. What if that's how many of us treat our faith in Jesus? Would that be what it means to say, Lord, Lord? And then Jesus comes and says, depart from me. I never knew you. To believe in Jesus, the only Son of God, is to believe you are a created being in need of saving. It is to believe that you are sinful and that your salvation is only through Jesus Christ because he is the only one worthy to have died and rose from the grave. To believe in Jesus, to, re to rejoice in the love God has given us in Jesus, it is to believe, and, and this belief is transformative. It affects the way we think, the way we act, the way we live. That's why we would say it's not only to believe, which we defined believing a couple weeks ago as that trusting and delighting in Jesus. And I think we would need to add on to that. What we have here is also there's this submission to Jesus. 
So when we believe in Jesus, it's, it's delighting in all who Jesus is. It's this heart that rejoices in him. It's a trusting in him. And this trusting leads to submission. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Have you ever thought about that? How do you call him Lord? And do not do what I tell you. To believe in Jesus is to know that Jesus is king. That he's on the throne, that we are not on the throne. Is to live life as he calls us to, not as we would. Now, I just want to encourage you. Is this the Jesus whom you believed in? When you say, I believe in Jesus, are you delighting in this Jesus? Are you trusting in this Jesus? Are you submitting to this Jesus? Or do you know a lot about him? You could probably pass the Bible trivia test. But maybe you're not submitting to Jesus. And this is something I think we have to wrestle with a lot. One thing, when we go to India, there's just going to be, there's a different culture, there's a different scenario. These people, when they come to know Christ, they, they count the cost because it literally can kill them coming to know Christ. So it's not really a question of believing in or believing about. They know, am I all in? Because this faith may very much cost me my life. Because nobody just believes about Jesus there. You're either in or you're out. Now, they have different struggles culturally. But here, in our culture, there's tons of blessings. And I think we, we can't miss the blessings of the culture we live in. There's, there's negatives that come with them. There's temptations that come with them, like apathy and laziness. Which is why I think we do need to wrestle with are we here today in this room saying, I believe a lot about Jesus, but have not actually submitted? Are you living a life right now for Jesus as King and Savior? Or is he a nice addition to your life? And I just ask you to wrestle with that. And I pray that we can all say, he is the King and Lord and Savior in my life. You know that you've been washed and made clean by the blood of Jesus. You know that. Do you know he is sovereign over all things? So this is Mother's Day. So I'll try to end this on a more motherly note. Uh, but whatever I, I guess I say could easily be applied to the husbands and fathers as well. Um, so I would say this, moms... Read the word to your children. Help them to see Jesus. It's not 66 books. It's, it's not 66 stories. It's one story. And when they see Jesus, help them to know that they're actually seeing God. And to know that when you're reading the word with them, you're sowing seeds into their heart that you're praying that one day God comes and gives growth and gives faith to. Help them to see that they're sinners in need of forgiveness. Help them to see the world through the lens of the Bible. See, reading the Bible, what was beautiful today, so Ben and I, we, we go and we're with Jeff and Jenny, and I get they're kind of in the shock right now, but even Jeff's text to me at 441 says, may the praise of God always be on my lips. And, and as we're there, and as he's talking, I mean, he just, he just prays and clings to the sovereignty of God. 
You don't do that in the midst of suffering without having that anchor there already. Don't wait to read your Bibles when all hell goes loose in your life. We read the Bibles now. We grow in our faith now knowing that there will be hardships and persecutions and afflictions so that this faith we have will sustain us. And that's what Jeff and Jenny demonstrated so much today. And I think that's the way we need to pray. They continue in the faith. That they persevere knowing our God is good. Our God is in control. I have no idea how. And I'm going to keep walking in obedience at this moment. You don't do that unless you read your Bible ahead of times. Because it's in the Word that we see Christ and His sufficiency. And that God, for thousands of years, showed how His Son will come, brings all of that prophecy to fulfillment in Jesus, raises Him from the grave, proving He's the Son of God, victorious over sin, death, and Satan. So moms, read the Word with your children so they see this Jesus. And teach your children what it is to believe in Jesus. Not about, but to believe in. Let them see how, how your belief affects the way you go through life. Let them see the way you pray about things. Let them see when you sin, how you ask God for forgiveness to God and to others as well. When you lose something, pray over it. Let them see how we depend upon God in all things. Let them see our faith is not a backpack that we carry. We sit down at the front door. We pick it up on Sundays when we go to church. We come back down. We put it back down, but we wear it all the time because it's inside of us. It's a new heart that we have. Help your children see your faith. Help them and teach them submission. And you, as moms, have an incredible way to do this. And teach them to submit to the authority of God's word through reading it with them and helping them see how we live our lives accordingly. You s teach them submission to the authorities of this world, to police officers, to governments. In the way you speak about our president, you teach them about authorities. You teach them submission to the church as you come, and you show that membership matters as we submit to the public teaching of the word and to the elders within the church. You teach them submission as you show them and display submission to your husband, who as Paul goes in Ephesians 5, the husband is the head of the house as Christ is the head of the church. And the wife is to submit to the husband as the church submits to Christ. So the role is not submit because you're weaker, it's submit because you have a different role, just as Christ has a different just as Christ submits to the Father, and so the church submits to Christ, and, and as husbands, we lead our families. So husbands are not greater than their wives, we just simply have different roles. And the wives, mothers, you teach your children amazing significance on how to submit. Because in all these areas, you're showing submission, you're showing them that this is a good thing. It's something that is rooted in the very Godhead itself, it's not a four-letter word as culture would have us believe. And women, I would say the way that you will read, the way that you will teach, the way that you will teach them submission and believing in God is, is by rooting yourself first and foremost in the word of God that you believe in Jesus more and more each and every day. And so husbands, if you want to shepherd your wives, lead them in the word. 
Pray with them. Pray they would know the Word. And wives, as you pursue Christ, if you're going to love your husbands and your children and help those in the church, it'll be as you come into the Word and submit yourself to the Word each and every day, knowing that in the Word we see Jesus, our King and our Savior, our Lord. So I'm going to pray and then we'll take communion.